Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Join me in prayer. Hosanna, loud Hosanna. It is on the lips of children and every adult this day. For you are good and you are gracious, Lord, and we celebrate all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. We celebrate your promises. We celebrate your protection. Lord, as this Palm Sunday and leads us into Holy Week, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds to receive the Christ who comes. For it is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I had to be careful when Brock was singing not to sing too loud because I think it's, there's a, it picks it up here in the, uh, in the sanctuary. And so I didn't want my voice to be added to yours, Brock, in that. I think I figured out sort of the, what, the, what's going on here. Uh, Brock would be Andy, I would be Virginia, and Jeff would be Kenneth. I think that's exactly what we've got going on here, and my heart just feels so good for that. So, And if you're outside of Kentucky and don't know who Andy is, I think all you'll need to do is Google Andy, and it will come up uh, Andy Bashir at this time. So, so appreciative of those who lead us and lead us well. I don't know about you, but I enjoy people watching. Do you enjoy people watching? Airports are great. Um, the mall, when we could go to the mall, that's a great place to people watch. I know the kids this day, they call it stalking, but it's really not stalking, it's people watching. You observe and, and you, you uh, see what people are like and, and what they do and the things that maybe you need to avoid and maybe some things that, that work for you. I know that uh, it, some of the, 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 the funnest times of being stuck in places, whether it's an airport or anywhere else, just being able to, to view people and to just feel like you have a little knowledge about them. One person that it is always okay to stalk is Jesus. And that's what we've been doing since the beginning of this year. We have been following Jesus closely. And we've been using the book of Matthew and the book of John to do just that. Because we want to see what Jesus is doing and where Jesus is going and how he's interacting and, and what his life means for us and perhaps for all of humanity. A couple of things that we, we've seen, themes that have come through clearly about Jesus' life. The first is that Jesus is the Son of God. That's been clear in Matthew. Jesus has authority that has been given from well above. He is the one that we look to. He is the one who has the plan and the power. And we saw that even early on. I mean, his birth, there's a star in the sky at his birth. And, and, and astrologers from the east come and they bring gifts. I mean, we see that this Jesus is someone to look up to. Something is going on here something well beyond our realm. We go to his baptism, and as his cousin John baptizes him and brings him out of the River Jordan, what, did, what do we hear? This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. A voice from heaven and, and dove lands on him. And we know once and for all that there's something going on here. 
Jesus is someone special. We hear Jesus teaching, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's not teaching someone else's lessons, it's teaching his lessons. He speaks with an authority that is well beyond what any one of us have ever heard then or now. Jesus has this authority, an understanding, a wisdom. The Mount of Transfiguration, which was just a few weeks ago before Lent began, Jesus climbs a mountain, he takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he says, you all stay there, I'm going to go a little further and pray. And who shows up except Moses and Elijah? And it's Jesus that is the center of attention, even with Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the head of the prophets. It is Jesus who far supersedes them. And as both Moses and Elijah push into the, into the background, the word of God comes again and reminds us what was reminded to us at the baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there's a caveat now. Listen to him. Listen to him. You can't mistake Jesus's power. You can't mistake that Jesus is the son of God for the way that he teaches the expressions he uses, the way that he is healing. We've even seen him raise people from the dead. Jesus is over all, as it will be later said about him. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no exception. There is no denying that fact. But there's another theme that runs all throughout Matthew and Jesus' life. And if we've been listening closely, if we've been looking closely, we've realized that there's something else that's going on that is just as important it's not about Jesus's ascension it's about how low he's willing to go at his birth what happens Herod comes after him and his family escapes and becomes refugees in Egypt the, the son of God on the run for his protection at his baptism right after the baptism it says that he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, to experience exactly what we've experienced, to be willing to give himself over to hunger and thirst, and then to face the ultimate enemy, evil incarnate, who we call Satan. We saw him teach and heal in what should have been joyous times, well, there's groups of people, religious leaders, who continually push back on him, and they want to know what part of Satan's kingdom is he a part of? And how can he be doing this thing? And doesn't he, they, doesn't he know that he's causing more trouble than good? The religious leaders were rejecting him, and we know that they will have a final rejection of him. But it wasn't just the religious leaders. His own hometown pushes him out and wants to stone him, and Jesus has to escape from that place. It's not about Jesus' authority anymore. It's about how he deals with rejection, how he's willing to give up those things that we would say are his rights. And to be a person like us, in a real way rejected and looked down upon, he takes up this lowly spot. Even... As Jesus begins to teach towards the end of Matthew, he starts talking about what does real greatness look like? 
And he does this because his disciples keep asking him, what does real greatness look like? Can I be the first in your kingdom? Can I sit in your right and your left hand? Jesus, just do this for me. And, and Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not about being first. You're missing it altogether. There's something else going on here. And twice, Jesus talks about his death. And actually a third time, he mentions it. He's like, look, I'm not here to ascend to some earthly throne. I'm here to give myself over to the authorities who are going to reject me completely, bind me, crucify me. He said, that's what it means to follow, deny yourself, take up your cross. Not to ascend to some place of special privilege. He starts to to pull children in and he starts to say, look, if if you want to know what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of God, it, it is these all around you, these babes and toddlers and Elementary school, though they didn't have elementary school then, and, and, and junior high and senior high, these are the ones that show us what it looks like. For they come in faith and realize they don't have it all figured out, and, and they come freely with great joy. This is what the kingdom of God looks like if you want to be the greatest. It's to be like children. He interacts with a rich young ruler, and remember how this ends. He says, look, you need to give away all your possessions. Give them all to the poor and then follow me. That's what it looks like to be a part of this kingdom. It's not about this grandeur. It's about how low you're willing to remain. How eager you are to serve. And he tells the disciples in Matthew 19.30, after this rich young ruler has gone, the disciples are saying, wait a second, Lord, we've given up everything for you. What is there in it for us? And Jesus tells them in Matthew 19.30, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And he doesn't just leave it like that. He tells this parable about this vineyard owner who has laborers he brings into the field all day long, and then he pays them all the same, and the and the the disciples begin to grumble. This makes no sense. The one who worked longest should get paid most. And Jesus says, you still don't get it. In my kingdom, the last will always be first. And the first will be last. They still didn't get it. James and John's mother, just below this, in a few lines comes to Jesus and the ultimate and first helicopter parent, I'm pretty certain. And she comes to Jesus and says, when you get into your kingdom, can James and John sit on your right and your left? Can they have places of honor and privilege? And Jesus at this point says, it's not mine to give, A, and B, you're missing it completely, and C, everybody, right here, right now. Sort of like one of my high school coaches who was tired of saying the same thing over and over again. Everybody, right, stop what you're doing right here, right now. Gather around. I want to tell you expressly what this means. As Jesus said, I have come not to be served, but to serve. It's not about how great, it's about how willing we are to serve. It's not about the highness that we get. It's about our willingness. And Jesus was willing to be lowly. He was willing to be humble. 
And so we immediately turn to this entry into Jerusalem, and often it is called the triumphal entry. And I want to tell you today, I think that is a misnomer. I think that is a mistake. It was a triumphal entry, but it was not all at the same time. It was a humble entry by a lowly king and a servant Messiah. It was, it was a humble entry by a lowly king and a servant Messiah. I mean, this king didn't even have a donkey to call his own. He had to go borrow one. And, and it wasn't just borrowing one from a friend. He had to send his disciples into town and hope they didn't get caught. And if they got caught, he gave them some words to say. He had nothing. He had no home. He had no possessions. He really couldn't even feed himself. This lowly king and servant Messiah rides into town on a donkey. Not a sign of a conqueror, not a sign of someone bringing war, but someone who is bringing humility and peace. Someone who is saying, hey, look, you all that are around me, I'm here for you. Nothing will change. This lowly king and servant Messiah he had raised up 12 disciples. And even that wasn't going well. One would deny him completely, reject him, and hand him over to the authorities to be killed. Ten of the others, when he is taken captive, we find them dispersing. Well, well Peter sort of follows behind, but it didn't end well for Peter, who denies him three times. And then we have just one who made it to the foot of the cross along with Jesus' mother. Outside looking in, this lowly king, this servant Messiah, he didn't have a whole lot to show for this time that he had spent, at least outward looking in. And yet he had a lot to show because he showed us that his authority, his, his deity, his very purpose wasn't going to be accomplished by coming and lording over us and demanding of us. His authority wasn't going to be about his role as king or prophet or even Messiah. His authority was going to be built on how much he would be willing to put us, you and me, the good, the bad, the faithful, the rejectors, how he would be willing to put all of us ahead of himself. That's what it looks like in this kingdom that Jesus shows us. It was a humble entry by a lowly king and a servant Messiah. And if that offends you this morning, I'm sorry. And yet I'm not. Jesus wasn't about upward mobility ever. He was about downward nobility. How close can I come to the people and to bear their burdens and to suffer with them? That's how they'll follow me because they know I love them so much, not because they're following because I'm telling them and manipulating them and making them guilty. The Apostle Paul, he got this. He understood after much hardship. And the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, these words, chapter 12, verse 8. 
Paul had been suffering with some infirmity, said that he had prayed three times for God to take it away from him. And here is the message that he received. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on to say, so I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, pandemics, he would say, for the sake of Christ. For whenever I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul got this idea that Jesus had been offering and showing that the real power of God was not going to come in any other way except through weakness, through being willingness to be low and to serve humbly. That's the true power of God that will show up and change the world. It's through our weaknesses. And Jesus shows us even in the triumphal entry or this humble entry that it was all about how low Jesus was willing to go, how much he was willing to give up, how much he was willing to show he loved us. The church has experienced weakness throughout its 2,000 years. There have been many hardships from persecutions to illnesses. They have been beaten and bruised and pushed out and rejected. And that every time the church who has responded that, Lord, your power is made perfect in my weakness, has been used to set the next generation up for faithfulness and a transformation in the power of God. I think we all know that the church today, not only First United Methodist Church, but all the churches, are experiencing a period of weakness. Much has been taken away from us, from our ability to gather and support one another, from our ability to gather and worship. Even in the space, it looks different, doesn't it? No organ, no choir, no friendly faces. So much has been taken away from us. Paul's prayers are a great reminder that through this weakness, through this period of trial, God very well could be doing something for not only today, but for eternity. And here's the deal. Will we embrace, will we acknowledge that it is through these weaknesses, this inability for us to be together in the ways that we are normally, will we look for God in this? Dark night of the soul is something that often gets uh, personalized. This is a person who, who sort of feels distant from God. God never goes anywhere, but the feelings go away. God still very much maintains this relationship, but it becomes less and less apparent. And I'm wondering if right now we as a church are experiencing a corporate dark night of the soul. Things have changed. We're not sure when they'll be coming back. So what do we do at this point? You know, there was 120 persons 
who end up persevering with Jesus to the end. When he ascended, there was 120 persons that were in Jerusalem waiting, watching, and praying. Everybody else had dispersed. The thousands he had fed, gone. All the people that he had healed, only a handful showed up. You see, the the minute Jesus' right hand of power could no longer help them, they started to look elsewhere. But it was 120 who were willing to persevere through that knew that it was in their weakness that God's power was going to show up and they believed the promises of God. And Jesus told them, go to Jerusalem, stay there. Don't move. Pray and wait and the power of the Holy Spirit will come on you and everything's about to change. They were willing to trust in the presence of God even when the power of God, even when the religious trappings were completely gone. Will we be that type of people? I believe God is raising up our generation's 120. Those who are willing to say, it's not about your power. It is not about what you can do for me. I want you and you alone. My desire is for your presence and yours alone. It is your face and nothing else that I desire, Lord. And I believe there's this generation's 120 that God's raising up who will be willing to wait literally in our houses to watch faithfully and not give up and to pray continually. And I believe that this 120 that God is raising up now, and, and I hope it's a million, I hope it's a hundred million, realize that God's power is made complete when everything is taken away from us. Would you be part of that 120? Would you be willing to say, I will wait, I will watch, I will remain as connected as I can, and I will pray continually. In just a few moments, we will conclude the services from the sanctuary, but our worship won't stop. We're going to be hosting a prayer meeting immediately after this. And I'm calling upon us as believers, whether you worship at First United Methodist Church or elsewhere, if you're willing to wait and watch and acknowledge that God's power is at work, and particularly through this time of trial, I want you to join and lift your prayers together. We're going to put it in the, in the notes here momentarily, and when we conclude after the postlude is played, there'll be a moment for you to go and to assemble into that room and for us to begin to pray as we have been at noon and at 8 a.m. and 9 too, to wait and watch together and to say, Lord, we know that even in our state, even in our predicament, we know that your power is made perfect in our weakness. And we want you, Lord. We want you. We want you. Would you join me in prayer?
Lord, rain upon us. Help us to see your promises clearly again for this generation, this people. You, you Lord, have not caused this. You are actively working to restore us. And yet in this time, you've offered us the opportunity to, to just take a step back and to focus on you, to take a step back, even if it's forced, and to be reminded that you are the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And your authority is not about manipulation. Your authority is about serving. And so when we serve one another and serve you through our waiting, our watching, our praying, we are ushering in your kingdom. And just like this time, Palm Sunday ushers in Easter. We know that that will absolutely happen in our midst too. We give you thanks, Lord. We love you. We desire nothing but you, for it is in your good name we pray and trust. Amen and amen.